0: There is a famous saying that usually is stated before the beginning of most PCA General Assemblies. It's it's sort of an, an exhortation, and I expect they're not the only ones to use it. It goes something like this. Sometimes everything has been said that can be said on a topic at hand, but not everyone has said it. If you didn't catch the meaning of that, that, that is a rebuke to people who either aren't listening to the debate or don't like the way things are being said, and they, and they hold their peace for a time, but eventually they decide they need to come to the microphone and let people hear them for the next two minutes. Well, they take captive a thousand people to hear an argument that's been made two or three times already. There's something about people like that, that that we don't like, that we don't get excited about, because they take up other people's times. And when we come this morning to chapters 32 to 37 of the book of Job, we're going to meet a character who in some ways can identify with being one of those kind of people. He has a lot to say, but ultimately I think as we assess it, we're going to find that he's got important things to say, useful things to say, even true things to say, but things that after all that's already been said may not help that much. Ultimately, they may serve as a rebuke to us to warn us against how we use our own words. And so let's pray together and let's ask for the Lord's help in understanding this large section of the book of Job Our Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you even for this section, this this poetry that you've given to us in these many chapters to reveal more of your character, but also more of how men function with one another. We pray, Lord, that by your Spirit's help and leading, that we would truly gain wisdom from this passage, that we would be taught to glorify you still more and to humble ourselves still more. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Just so you have an idea where we're going this morning, I want to start again with a review of the book of Job, recognizing that we're not doing this in a week by week exposition of the book. It's easy to lose your place and to forget what's happened before. So I'll go back and, and review some there. Then I'm going to let you meet Elihu. You've already had a pretty good introduction from the reading of the Old Testament reading of Scripture. I'm going to help you see and, and, and in some ways summarize some of Elihu's key points. What is he trying to say to Job? And then after that, we need to talk about both his method and his function uh, in this book before we think about how to apply this word to ourselves. Let's start by remembering about this book. Job is, is about a character. It's about a man who is a superlative character. He is supremely blessed and he, was, and he is supremely righteous. He has both those qualities. It seems that he obeys God in every sense of the word. He's this model for for every person on the earth to look at and how completely and how willingly he obeys God. And it seems that every aspect of his life is is a result of that, as he enjoys every blessing a man can have. He is wealthy. He has a large family. He has been made wise. And he is highly respected by everyone around him. No one in in, in the world thinks less of him. No one could think more of him than what they do. And yet he's going to go from being the wisest and wealthy of men to to one of the lowest. So much so that the the dregs of society are going to mock him. That's how low he goes. And we as as readers, we're, we're given this heaven's eye view of why these things take place. In Job chapters 1 and 2, we're a witness to Job's fall from glory. We see this man become destitute and destroyed. He ultimately becomes a boil-covered man who is sitting in the the ashes of the the dust heap, who is scraping his body with with shards of broken pottery. It is a horribly pathetic and sympathy-invoking image. And it does invoke some sympathy, not from everyone. Most people are already ready to make the accusation that, that, that this is because of some terrible evil that Job has done. His his own wife, after seeing what had happened to him, she went to him and she said, Job, curse God and die. Just just finish it off. Whatever you did, whatever evil has taken place that's brought all of this on our family, let's just be done with it, finish it off by doing that. But Job does have friends. He has three friends, three wonderful, wise, and, and similarly proper, prosperous men who come to him. And they come to him and they, and they show themselves a, a godly example of what it is to come to comfort someone. They, they remain with him for a week in total silence, sitting by his side, just, just mourning along with him and all that he has lost. But then at the end of it, we read this in chapter 3, Job comes out of his silence he comes out of his misery to open up words that are equal to the physical misery he's been in. He gives a description of himself and of his plight and, and of his innocence and how, how horrible this is. And, and once the friends hear this, they can't take it anymore. They, they decide they have to respond. They decide that they're going to go the route of all the, the others who would accuse Job. They have the sneaking suspicion that, that what happened to Job is something deserved that God doesn't treat people this way ever unless they do some horrible evil. And so God has merely responded in kind to the kind of evil that Job had done. And so they try to help him. They begin to go to work, and they they begin to try and teach Job. They want to try and remind him of how they have observed in the world that God works. They're helping him come to the point where he will eventually confess the sin he's guilty of. But again, we know that that is not the case from that heaven's-eye view that we have everything that has happened to Job. All the misery that he is in is because of the work of Satan, but also because of the will of God. And it's interesting when you begin to look at what we've talked about so far, you realize that that every person in the book uh, of Job, all all of the people, whatever side they're landing on the debate about whether he has done right or wrong, is that every one of these agree that Job is not just having a randomly bad day. They don't think it's just you know just just kind of you know sometimes that's the way the stars line and there you go, bad things happen. Nobody is taking that assumption. Satan saw causes for Job's righteousness and for his blessings, and so he says, "This is how you work, God, and sh- show me what happens whenever he is not blessed." Job's wife and his three friends they all assumed that he was suffering because he had brought something on himself, is that he invited it, but it was God's righteous wrath. And we see even from the text of Scripture is that God is unapologetically ruling over it all. This is all happening under his will. And Job himself has accepted this. He has no doubt who is ultimately behind what has happened in his life. Satan doesn't, never comes up for him. He continually focuses on God being the one who has, who has put him in this position. Job thirty one thirty five. he says, Oh, that I had one to hear me. Here is my mark. Oh, that the Almighty would answer me. That my prosecutor had written a book. So when we read the book of Job, there are no atheists in this book. There are no deists in this book. There's no people that think that God just kind of started all creation and then backed away and doesn't really care. Everyone thinks that God is involved. And so it's not a debate over where God was in Job's life. It's a debate over why God was, how he was in Job's life. And we are left longing for answers. And so Elihu enters the picture. This morning we come to what is actually the most substantial speech of the book. I, I, I say that it's substantial because it, it, it trounces all other speeches for pure verbosity. Elihu's soliloquy covers six chapters. It contains over a thousand Hebrew words, almost 3,000 in our English translations. And you can thank me later for not reading all of it because that would have been painful. His speech is actually 25% longer than the speech that God is going to follow with in chapters 38 to 41. The point is that there is much that is head here. Whatever we make of it, we have to take it seriously. It's Holy Spirit-inspired <clears throat> spirit and included text. And so what's the role of this speech? Well, first off, let's meet Elihu. The narrator of the book introduces Elihu, and he gives us a decent amount of detail for him. First off, he is an apparent bystander. Elihu has been a spectator. He he has been watching and paying close attention to the debates. Maybe not as close of attention as he should have, but he he is a very active listener and is responding to what he hears. We read in 32.11, he says, I indeed waited for your words. I listened to your reasonings while you searched out what to say. I paid close attention to you. That's his own testimony. The second thing about Elihu is that he is likely a Hebrew. He's described in Job 32.2 as Elihu, the son of Barakel, the Buzite of the family of Ram. And the name Barakel, is, that, that name is unknown to us. It's certainly Semitic. It sounds like a, a Hebrew name. Buzz is someone that we know from Genesis 22. He's the brother of Uz. He's the, the nephew of Abraham. This could, in fact, be the same person. And Ram is also one who's listed as an ancestor of David. We read about that in Ruth 4 and First Chronicles 2. The very, whether this is the, the, the actual case or not, the, the, the response, if you had been a Jewish reader of this book, is you would have heard those things and you would have thought, oh, finally, we're going to get some wisdom. You had these other, two, these other three Edomites who are weighing in, who had all these things to say about God, but now we're going to have someone who truly knows God. Maybe they'll sit down, they'll shut their mouths, in, and we'll, we'll get true wisdom as far as it goes. We'll see. A third thing we see about him is that he is, by his own testimony, a young man. That's a, that's a fact that's substantial in part because he highlights it continually for us, Job 32, four. Now, because they were years older than he, Elihu had waited to speak to Job. Verse 6, So Elihu, the son of Barakel, the Buzzite answered and said, I am young in years, and you are very old. 32, seven. I said, Age should speak, and multitude of years should teach wisdom. He did not have those, so he deferred. He's a young man. He, he puts that on the front end, and, and that begins to tell us something about what is likely to be true about him. We find out the next part is that he is also angry. The fourth thing you pick up on quickly is that, that Elihu is very disappointed with how the argument has gone. Listen to verses 2 and 3. It says, Then the wrath of Elihu, the son of Barakel, the buzzite of the family of Ram, was aroused against Job. His wrath was aroused because he justified himself rather than God. Also, against his three friends, his wrath was aroused. The ESV Bible puts it this way it says he burned with anger. He's burning with anger in every direction. At what's going on. And so he, he begins to spill out that angel. He begins to speak about it. And that's what you're hearing in verse 32. It's almost wholly taken up with an attack on the friends. To say, look, I didn't want to be here. But because you guys are, are, are so foolish. Because you're so weak. Because you're giving up so quickly. I've got to jump in. And now I'm going to give true wisdom. You failed. I'm disappointed. It's time for, for me to speak up. And to, to let people hear the truth. Elihu is hot. Listen now, he finishes the chapter again. Verse 17, he says, I also will answer my part. I too will declare my opinion, for I am full of words. The spirit within me compels me. Indeed, my belly is like wine that has no vent. It is ready to burst like new wineskins. I will speak that I may find relief. He's convinced that what he is thinking has to come out. And so what's going to come out? Well, we're going to find that Elihu is making an old argument with a new foundation. Elihu is, is continuing to do this the, the same thing that friends have done, that have been teaching, that even Job falls into himself. Is he is teaching retribution theology, that people get what they deserve. But there's a difference. Elihu is going to do so on a spiritual basis where they only did so on an experiential basis. They, they, they said this based on what they saw, what they thought they had observed about how the world works. But now Elihu wants to debate and focus on God's part. So the wisdom debate is going to continue, and that's how he finishes that chapter. He says, The multitude of years should teach wisdom, but there is a spirit in man, and the breath of the Almighty gives him understanding. Great men are not always wise, nor do the aged always understand justice. Therefore, I say, listen to me, and I also will declare my opinion. He's keeping the debate going. We thought it was done. They had the back and forth between Job and the three friends. We had Job's closing arguments. We should be ready to move on. But now Elihu is is going to keep it going. So what's he going to say? Well, we find this out in the next several chapters. And there are key points to his argument. So I'm going to walk you through several of those. The the first point that he makes is that God is active in calling people to repentance. And he does so. He says that God does this by speaking to men through circumstances. The first one that he wants to point out, we find in Job thirty-three, fourteen to 18. Look there in, in, in the text and see what, what, what Elihu is saying. He says, For God may speak in one way or in another, yet man does not perceive it. In a dream, in a vision of the night, when deep sleep falls upon men while slumbering on their beds, then he opens the ears of men and seals their instruction. In order to turn man from his deed and conceal pride from man, he keeps back his soul from the pit and his life from perishing by the sword. He says terrifying dreams are God's call to repentance. And and there's certainly something to be said for that. There's, There's something biblical about that. We can think of Abimelech who was warned in a dream against taking Abraham's wife. Read about that in Genesis chapter 20. We can think about Nebuchadnezzar and the dreams that he had, that Daniel interpreted for him, that warned him what was to befall him. Or we can even think about Pilate and Pilate's wife, who said Matthew twenty seven nineteen? Have nothing to do with this just man, for I have suffered many things today in a dream because of him. To be sure, there, there's, God can use dreams in that way. And to be sure, it is a blessing to suffer in your dreams so that you don't suffer in this life. But the fact is that dreams can be misinterpreted. Dreams don't interpret themselves. And you notice that in Scripture, there, there, there's frequently a, a, an interpreter of those dreams that makes sense of them. There's a context which helps for it. One of the places I'd point you to, I won't, I won't go into it, but Richard Baxter in his Christian directory, he actually, in a very practical way, has, a, has an extended discussion of what to do with our troubling dreams, the things that happen in our dreams. And, and you can go there and see it for yourself. We should appreciate that dreams are, are, are not necessarily self-interpreting. They can be misapplied. And so his, his encouragement to listen to this is good, but it needs to be come with a caution. He also says God warns us in another way. Look at verse 19 of chapter 33. Elihu says, Man is also chastened with pain on his bed, and with strong pain in many of his bones, so that his life abhors bread and his soul succulent food. His flesh wastes away from sight, his bones sick out, which once were not seen. Yes, his soul draws near the pit, and his life to the executioners. And again, we find truth in this. There's something as this as well. C.S. Lewis famously said, God whispers to us in our pleasures, he speaks in our conscience, but shouts in our pain. It is a megaphone to arouse a deaf world. That can be true. Psalm 30 points us in that direction. It says in Psalm thirty two, O Lord my God, I cried out to you, and you healed me. Psalm thirty five, for his anger is but for a moment, his favor is for life. Weeping may endure for a night, but joy comes in the morning. Proverbs three teaches us this. Verse eleven, we read of Proverbs three My son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor detest his correction, for whom he loves, he corrects, just as the Father, the Son, in whom he delights. It certainly can be the case that pain teaches us. Certainly you touch a hot stove, you learn from that. So there's certainly truth in that. But you even see in this point, in the way he is encouraging him, this description he gives of someone who is suffering in pain is one that you look over and you see when you see Job sitting on the ash heap. He says, hmm, Job, you are a perfect description of what happens to sinners when they sin deeply and they need to repent. All signs point to God is teaching you and calling on you Repent. Yeah, we're right to think of pain in this way, to give it special attention, but it's not the only function it can serve. Elihu has a third call to repentance. He says this one comes through the heavenly messenger. Look in verse 23 of chapter 33. He says, if there is a messenger, an angel, or an envoy for him, a mediator, an intercessor, One among a thousand to show him his uprightness. Then he is gracious to him. And he says, deliver him from going to the pit. I have found a ransom. His flesh shall be like a young child's. He shall return to the days of his youth. He shall pray to God and he will delight in him. He shall see his faith with joy for he restores to man his righteousness. Then he looks at men and says, I have sinned and perverted what is right and it did not profit me. He will redeem his soul from going down to the pit, and his life shall see light. Amazingly, Elihu is here here putting out this picture of there there can be a mediator who intervenes, who comes in and who who, who speaks the truth to lead a man back to uprightness, to righteousness. And he can be restored out of the pit if if he will listen to to this this messenger of God who, who intercedes for him. Amazingly, he is in in some sense he is giving us a picture of the gospel, but at the same time he is also talking about who is who has been the the accuser, Satan, who sent him into this predicament. The the angel he alludes to, in that messenger, is the only angel that we've seen active so far in this book. But there's a gospel picture in that. But the the irony in in that is not only that the only angel active so far in this book in Joe's life has been Satan, or that he's not. <clears throat> or, or that it, he could be speaking about the gospel, which, which Job has been appealing to at several points already in the text. But there's also irony in the sense that Elihu may be speaking about himself. He may be saying, Job, I'm your angel. I'm the messenger sent by God. The Spirit of God is at work in me to tell you what you need to hear to call you to repentance so that your life can be saved from the pit. He's accused Job of having a a, a a disconnected view of his righteousness, to think too much of himself. But we hear Elihu saying things like this. But again, everything he says isn't wrong. It just depends on what he means when he says it. And then we find actually a fourth way. We have to jump ahead to chapter thirty-seven to see the fourth way in which God might speak to man to bring him to repentance. Look at chapter 37, verse 1. He says, At this also my heart trembles, and it leaps from its place. Hear attentively the thunder of his voice and the rumblings that come from his mouth. He sends it forth under the whole heaven, his lightning to the ends of the earth. After it, a voice roars. He thunders with his majestic voice, and he does not restrain them when his voice is heard. God thunders marvelously with his voice. He does great things which we cannot comprehend. What he's talking about there is when the storm rolls in. If you go back to the end of 36, we see he was talking there about rain coming. And maybe it was the, the, the very circumstance in which the debate was taking place that a storm was rolling in as he was speaking. In fact, that's what we're going to be led to when we come to the next chapter when God begins to speak. He's talking about rain and then thunder comes. And he, he reminds them of what, what is frequent in the ancient world is that God's voice was considered as coming on the storm. It frightens us. It causes fear in us. It stirs up our hearts to, to fear the true and living God. Again, that's a useful thing to be reminded, to, to view storms that way. My wife talked about this past week she was in a parking lot and had one of those, those lightning strikes very near to her. It was that little kind of wake-up call. That's useful. Reminds you that God is on His throne, and it's certainly worthy of thinking of repentance. So, what is Job's or what is Elihu's second point? What's the second thing that he's he's trying to teach? Well, again, this is one that can be useful. Not only does God call us to repentance, but Elihu wants to remind us that man can't claim to be righteous before God. We've certainly heard that before. Again, go back to chapter thirty-three, verse nine. He attacks Job for Job's self-defense. For he says, Job says, I am pure without transgression. I am innocent and there is no iniquity in me. And he finds occasion against me. He counts me as his enemy. He puts my feet in stocks. He watches all my paths. And Elihu says to Job, look, in this you are not righteous. I will answer you, for God is greater than man. Why do you contend with him? For he does not give an accounting of any of his works. And again, those are helpful reminders to remind someone that, yes, man is not righteous. God is righteous. God is holy. God is enthroned above, and you are not God. But part of the problem with what, what Elihu would say to Job here is that he's not careful in paying attention to the exact words that, God, that, that, that Job has said. Job never said that he was without sin. He never said that he was perfectly pure or totally clean or guiltless of any sin. Only he has defended himself in this respect that he is not guilty of the kind of sin that would warrant what had happened to him, and certainly not in immediacy. Has Job said too much in the course of his defense of himself? Yes. At times he has crossed the boundary. He has said things of God that were careless. He has charged him with not paying attention to what's going on in the world. But does he deserve to have this accusation leveled against him? Look at 34.5. He says, for Job has said, I am righteous, but God has taken away my justice. Should I lie concerning my right? My wound is incurable, though I am without transgression. And he says to Job, what man is like Job who drinks scorn like water, who goes in company of the workers of iniquity and walks with wicked men? For he has said it profits a man nothing that he should delight in God. The interesting thing about that statement is that we don't find Job actually saying that. He says things that, that might be taken that way or interpreted that way, but that's not the actual phraseology that he would use. Elihu goes on, don't stop him. He says in 3410, Therefore listen to me, you men of understanding, far be it from God to do wickedness and the Almighty to commit iniquity, for he repays man according to his work and makes man to find a reward according to his way. Surely God will never do wickedly, nor will the Almighty pervert justice. Once again, these are profound truths. These are truths that need to be heard that we can agree with. But are they correctly applied in this case? Look now at 34. 34. Elihu says, men of understanding, listen to me. Wise men, listen to me. Job speaks without knowledge. His words are without wisdom. Oh, that Job were tried to the utmost Because his answers are like those of wicked men. For he adds rebellion to his sin. He claps his hands among us and multiplies his words against God. Elihu is arguing. And Elihu has an audience. He has the three friends. But it seems like there may well be more people here. And he is speaking for the benefit of the audience. Because he has turned this into a public trial. And he's tried to change the nature of it. Rather than Job being on trial before the friends. He says that that Job has put God on trial. And he's going to be the defender He's going to defend God against Job's accusations. He says in thirty five two, do you think this is right? Do you say my righteousness is more than God's? For you say, What advantage will it be to you? What profit shall I have more than if I had sinned? And he says in verse thirteen, Surely God will listen surely God will not listen to empty talk, nor will the Almighty regard it. Although you say to him, you do not see it, yet justice is before him and you must wait for him. It's interesting, The lie is arguing, he's fighting against, against the position that he believes that, that, that Job has and saying that he is innocent, but he's still holding out this retribution theology. And the only thing is he's creating a problem for himself because he's saying that men get what they deserve in this life. They get what's coming to them. Job, you are getting what's coming to you. But at the same time, he's argued beyond the friends. He says... You need to die. It's time for you to go. You've said too much. You've invited God's wrath and it's coming. But it hasn't come. And so even the argument he's making that God takes care of things right away, it's not happening. And so he's arguing against himself. There's another point he makes. He says that God does not act wickedly in condemning the righteous. You heard that in in chapter 34. But we could, we could maybe reduce it down and summarize by jumping ahead to 36. And just listen to how you how he makes this argument and the the key part of it. Job 36, verse 5, Elihu says, Behold, God is mighty, but despises no one. He is mighty in strength of understanding. He does not preserve the life of the wicked, but gives justice to the oppressed. He does not withdraw his eyes from the righteous, but they are on the throne with kings. For he has seated them forever, and they are exalted And if they are bound in fetters, held in the cords of affliction, then he tells them their work and their transgressions, that they have acted defiantly. He also opens their ears to instructions, commands that they turn from iniquity. If they obey and serve him, they shall spend their days in prosperity and their years in pleasure. But if they do not obey, they shall perish by the sword and they shall die without knowledge." Again, he's revealing himself at the end of the day. It's more retribution theology, more that people always get what's coming to them, whether for good or for evil. And he could be gloriously right if he's thinking eschatologically speaking that this is the ultimate place of the righteous, those who are righteous not by their own deeds but by the righteousness of Christ, as they will indeed be seated on thrones eternally. And those others who have rejected the way who have denied Christ, who have gone their own way, who have tried to be righteous in their own eyes, as they will be destroyed eternally. But we can't say that Elihu is thinking as such. So what do we make of Elihu? What do we make of his method? We can say this, for all his bluster about getting through to Job to offer real wisdom, it's largely been a question of rhetoric rather than actual revelation. We're reminded of the words of Proverbs chapter ten, verse nineteen, where it says, In the multitude of words, sin is not lacking, but he who restrains his lips is wise. He might have just listened and reflected and been content to wait on the Lord, but he wasn't. And so, like the friends, he comes up with accusations against Job, founded on wonderful, glorious troops that, that we hold precious, but applied unfairly and wrongly in the case of Job. He accuses Job of sin. Again, he says, "What man is like Job who drinks scorn like water?" He thinks Job is recalcitrant, who's stubborn, he is hard-hearted, and he says Job is full of theological error. Whatever points he get right, he does undoes so much of those good things by leading in the wrong direction by accusing that man. So, what's his point? What's what's Elihu's function? Well. I'm comforted to know that there is no solid opinion on what Elihu is doing in this book. (laughs) And maybe you're thinking the same thing. Ancient commentators, Reformation commentators, modern scholars, they have broad views to say, is he a good guy, is he a bad guy, is he a mixed guy? And I think think it's good to to give some thought to both because there are wonderful truths that he says. And there are things that he does that, that look just like what he'd seen before. Some see him as truly rescuing the argument of the friends, in part because he offer, offers that gospel of a mediator in chapter 33, in part because he tries to ground what they were saying not on, on experience in the world, but to ground it on the, the nature of God, on, on a, a right theology. But others see him as simply an arrogant young man who is piling on to an already downtrodden job. He's not been paying attention. I think I fall in with the camp that says, yeah, he's a little bit of both. What seems to, to be humble and a reasonable way to approach the character of Elihu is that he has a confusion of good and bad counsel. He's young and he's brash, he's overconfident, he's well-intentioned, and he's in possession of profound truth, both rightly and wrongly applied. And hopefully you can look in a mirror and you can see yourself in Elihu, is that sometimes you are exactly what he is. You have this, 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 this handle on this truth over here. And it is true. It is right. It is grounded in the right place. But you, it becomes that hammer looking for a nail. And you say, this person needs to hear this thing that I know. And I'm going to give it to them straight and honest. And you make it as clear as you can. But you, you don't ask the questions first. You, you don't come to know the exact plight of the person in that situation. And so be warned, in a sense, by that. But here's another thing to do with Elihu that may be more important. Elihu is the final word of the debate before we encounter God. And there's, there's something kind of appropriate about back when we ended with, with Job's defense of himself is if we'd gone straight into hearing from God at the end of the story, it would have it made a more resounding rebuke of Job himself. But Elihu puts some space in, in between. He gives us some stuff to think about on the way there. And in some ways, he is preparing the way for us to hear from God. Some have, 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 likened, have likened him to a, a John the Baptist, a, a preacher of the way who, who is preparing for the one who is to come. And there are some things that he's doing that is useful because he is, he is helping change to a more Godward orientation in the debate. Not that Job didn't have it, but the friend's certainly missed out on, on those elements. But there's a little irony in that, too, because one of the things that Elihu keeps coming back to is he keeps saying to Job, look, God is not going to talk to you. Let me give you some examples. Job 35.12, he says, uh, or backing up to 35.9, he says, because of the multitude of oppressions, they cry out, they cry out for help because of the arm of the Almighty. But no one says, where is God my maker, who gives songs in the night, who teaches us more than the, the beasts of the earth and makes us wiser than the birds of heaven? There they cry out, but he does not answer. Because of the pride of evil men, surely God will not listen to empty talk, nor will the Almighty regard it. He's saying that, that God won't hear sinners. Job 36.2, he says, bear with me a little and I will show you that there are yet words to speak on God's behalf. I will fetch my knowledge from afar, I will ascribe righteous, righteousness to my maker. He says, God is not going to speak, so let me jump in and tell you what God would say if he were here, as if God wasn't there. And then he says in 37, 23, as for the Almighty, we cannot find him. He is excellent in power, in judgment, and justice. He does not oppress. Elihu is, is happy to speak for God, but he himself is confident that God is not going to speak. And the great irony of it is if we Turn to chapter 38, when the chapter turns from the speech of Elihu to the speech of God, we read this. It says, then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind. God is going to speak, and he's going to speak substantially. So how do we apply this word this morning? Well, there's a reminder, there's a multitude of reminders from Elihu's life. One of the things is that we're never on solid ground when we begin our argument talking about how wise we are. It doesn't mean you you get to automatically discount someone that tells you they have wisdom on a subject if they tell you that on the front end. But it does make a suspect when someone says, I have wisdom on this, you need to hear me, which is exactly what Elihu does. Think about the words instead of Proverbs. Proverbs 8 says this, does not wisdom cry out? and understanding lift up her voice. She takes her, her stand on the top of the high hill Beside the way where the paths meet, she cries out by the gates at the entry of the city and at the entrance of the doors, To you, O men, I call, and my voice is to the sons of men. It shouldn't be men crying out with their wisdom. It is wisdom crying out to us, receive what the word of God has to say. The wise don't cry out of their wisdom. Proverbs 11.2 says, When pride comes, then comes shame, but with the humble is wisdom. Proverbs 28 and 25 says, He who is proud of heart stirs up strife, but he who trusts in the Lord will be prospered. Elihu is one more strife stir. He is creating more division, more angst, more agony. He is piling on to Job once again. Wisdom doesn't start with assertions and accusations, wisdom starts with questions. Proverbs 15 14 says, The heart of him who has understanding seeks knowledge. But the mouth of fool feeds the mouth of fool's feeds on foolishness. Proverbs 18:15 The heart of the prudent acquires knowledge and the ear of the wise seeks knowledge. And then what's most appropriately applied, Proverbs twenty nine ten eleven. 11 The bloodthirsty hate the blameless, but the upright seek his well-being. What Elihu should have been doing. Verse 11 says a fool vents all his feelings, but a wise man holds them back who was burning to speak. His, his chest was full. He, he does not fit into the, 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 the picture of the prophets who are burdened by their message. He was a man who was driven by his emotions. Some of you may know this. Some of you have experienced this. You have been the cage stage Calvinist. I won't make you raise your hand, but it would be a lot of you. Do you know what the cage stage Calvinist is? If you don't know, it's, the, it's the, the young Christian who learns of the doctrines of grace. His eyes have been opened to the scriptures. He has read Romans 9 and Ephesians 1 and John 6 for the first time. And the lights come on and he says, Wow, I, I've never heard anything like this before. You mean it's all of God and it's not of me. I didn't save myself. It wasn't about my decision. And those are glorious truths to hit upon. Very much like Elijah who had glorious truths that he was holding on to. But those doctrines of grace are not meant to push aside all grace. The truth he's learned about how one-sided salvation is, how utterly incapable he is of saving himself, is not meant to turn into a weapon to use against other people. That's a zeal without knowledge. Again, it's back to the people with hammers see the whole world as a nail. That is not good. It's not good for anybody to be hit with a hammer. They're not vindicated because they're on the right side of the argument. Remember what the apostle Paul says in Romans 12:3. He says, "For I say through the grace given to me to everyone who is among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly as God has dealt to each one in a measure of faith." Colossians 3:12, "Therefore as the elect of God, holy and beloved, put on tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness, and long-suffering." This is how we're supposed to adorn ourselves, not with knowledge as a weapon. But with grace in our speech, with a loving bringing of the truth to other people, sometimes you can serve God without honor. You can serve Him gloriously. You can serve a function. A lie who certainly bridges a gap between what Job says and what God is going to say. But there are other people who bridge gaps. We can think of Genesis chapter fifty, in the case of Joseph's brothers who did horrible evil and handing him over, essentially handing him over to death. Joseph said of it, he says, As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring it about as it is this day to save many people alive. That is a glorious outcome, and they served that purpose, but that does not vindicate them one ounce in what they did. It was horribly wicked. When we're used as an evil means to bring about a good, that is a credit to the grace of God and to the faith and wisdom of those who are righteous in those cases, but not to those who do evil. Even if good comes of it. But is there anything positive you can take away from Elihu? Yes. Take this away. He he celebrates and rejoices in the righteousness of God. And he thinks it is a doctrine worth defending. He is attempting to give the faithful wounds of a friend when he speaks truth into the life of Job, when he tells him that he is wrong to accuse God of wrongdoing. Maybe he's misunderstood Job. Maybe Job has gone too far in places and said too much, but he he cares deeply about the holiness and the righteousness and the power and the vindication of God. And we should care as well. And Elihu serves that purpose. He, He helps us prepare for God showing up. And that's what we should ultimately long for. What we find when we get to that next chapter in chapter 38 is we should have that longing for the word of God. Elihu helps us do that. We want more. Elihu leaves us wanting more when he rehashes the same arguments. He says there is more to be heard. And so this morning we praise God for his inspired word. God is just when he speaks. He is blameless when he judges. And he he teaches us how to think and how to judge and how he judges in a right way. So let me close with the words of Romans 3. The Apostle Paul writes, But now the righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all and on all who believe. For there is no difference. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God set forth as a propitiation, His blood through faith to demonstrate His righteousness, because in His forbearance, God has passed over the sins that were previously committed to demonstrate at the present time his righteousness, that he might be just and justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus Christ. Friends, our hope is not in the arguments for wisdom. Our hope is in the word of God and that word which proclaims Christ to us, who is the vindication of God in every aspect of God and who covers, all, who covers over all of our sins. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you that you are the true and living God, that all power is yours and you are righteous in all your doings. And Father, whatever confusion there exists in Elihu and this portion of this book and our understanding with it, we know with you there is no confusion and your spirit is is able to make our ways straight, to give light and understanding. So Lord, direct us that our thoughts would be your thoughts, that our ways would be as your ways are. That we would love what you love and hate what you hate. And we would cling to that wisdom which you offer. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.